Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. You know, as a church, we are working our way through the book of 2 Timothy. And we have this week and next week, and we will be done with the book of 2 Timothy. We are going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 today. So I'd like you to take out your Bibles, turn there. I don't care if you turn there in a paper Bible or a phone Bible. Just get your Bibles out. It's always important to have the Word of God in front of you. Also, if you're new, please take out that sermon outline that is in your bulletin. That is the way we do teaching here at Crosswinds. I want you to be able to take your notes. I want you to be able to fill in the blank. You will learn so much more when you can interact, not just with your ear, but with a pen and a piece of paper. So if you're new to Crosswinds, please make sure you're able to do that. The verses 6 through 8 are some of Paul's final words that he ever wrote that are in our New Testament. Paul was very aware at this point when he wrote this letter and he penned these words that he would soon die by Nero. He would be killed for his faith. He would have his head chopped off. Yet as we read verses 6 through 8 in first, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, we find that he, Paul is not dying despondently. Paul is facing his death triumphantly. And the question is, how can Paul do that? How can Paul finish well? What enables him to face his death with triumph? And that's what we began studying last week when we read verse 6. And what's what we'll continue studying this week as we study verses 7 and 8. How can Paul face his death with triumph because we want to be able to face our deaths with triumph. We want to be able to also say that we were able to finish well. So hopefully by now you have uh, your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Stand out of reverence for God's word. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 to you. Follow along with your eyes in your copy of the word of God. Paul writes, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Now, if you look at these verses, you'll notice they actually, the three verses break up into three different tenses. In verse 6, Paul is talking about the present tense, where he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. But if you go to verse 7, he starts talking about the past tense. I have fought the good fight. I have run the good race. But then you go to verse 8, and he switches and starts talking about the future tense. Henceforth there is laid up for me a reward. So these verses are organized in present, past, and future tenses. But they all talk about while Paul was able to finish well. Now we have a number of points as you can see in your sermon outline. And by the way, we've had a little bit longer of a service this morning with you know, Joshua and Whitney sharing and other things. So just so you know, this will be a little bit longer of a message. I ask your forgiveness for that. I wasn't able to finish in first service, but I want to make sure I can finish in second service. This is a, this is a lot of good stuff here to help us be able to finish well. So I'm going to begin with a brief review of what we learned last week since this message is a continuation of it to this week. The first thing we learned from verse 6 was this. Finishing well means passing the baton to the next generation. We saw last week that many of the churches that Paul planted were not in a good position at this point. 
false teachers had come into those communities. They had led many astray, even elders astray. There was division in the churches, and it would seem like it was a terrible time for Paul to die because what he had poured life into, these churches, were not doing well. But yet Paul faced death without fear. And this is why. What Paul had done is he had poured his life into a number of young men who would be able to carry the baton of the gospel into the next generation. They would take up Paul's place when he was gone. He had prepared these men. He had built into these men. So even though there were still problems in the churches that he planted, he, know that he knew these men would be there to help these churches handle those problems well. Do you remember the names of some of these men? We talked about them last week. One was Timothy, to whom this letter was written. Another was Titus, which is also, there's another letter written to him by Paul, which is a leadership training letter that's in our scriptures. Another man was Crescens. Another man was Tychicus. These were all men that Paul had intentionally mentored and pl placed the baton of the gospel and the baton of leadership into their hands so they would be able to run with the gospel in their generation, which was the next generation. So the church would not fall apart when Paul was gone. He planned for the day he would leave. And folks, this is an incredibly important um, point for each one of us at Crosswinds. We will not always be here, especially those of us who are getting a little bit older. We have to plan for the day that we are gone. We have to take younger men and younger women, and we have to get the gospel into their hands, and we need to give them real leadership opportunities and give them real leadership responsibilities and let them begin running with the gospel. And we need to encourage them in the church. What often happens in many churches is seasoned leaders continue to hold the baton of the gospel all the way until they die, and they've never planned to put that in someone's hands. That is a recipe for the extinction of the church, not a recipe for the continuation of the church. So at Crosswinds, we are trying very hard to put the baton of the gospel, real leadership, into the hands of younger men and younger women and encourage them to run well. That's exactly what Paul did. So when he died, he could finish well. The second thing we saw last week in verse 6 was this. Finishing well means living life as a sacrifice to Jesus. We saw that Paul said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. At first we looked at that and we're like, what does that mean? But then we did some Old Testament research. Remember that last week? Went back to Numbers chapter 15 and we learned a little bit more about the Old Testament sacrificial system. That the sacrifices are actually multiple parts many times. There was an animal that was put on the altar. If it was a whole burnt offering, that whole animal was burned up. And then they took flour and oil, and after the animal was burned up, they put the flour and oil on the altar, and that was burned up. And the very last part of the sacrifice was the drink offering, which was wine, which after the flour and oil and animal was burned up and there was just hot coals on the altar, the wine was poured onto the hot coals and it went instantly up in steam. And that was a fragrant and pleasing aroma. And what Paul was saying here, when he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, that is, he's saying, this is the final piece of sacrifice of my life. All of his life had been lived as a sacrifice for Jesus to make Jesus' name famous and to share the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 12 we looked at, where Paul says we are to be living sacrifices for Christ? Folks, if you and I are going to live well in this life, if we are going to finish well in this life, we must realize that life is not about having more fun. Life is not about having more money. Life is not about trying to be more famous and get more likes on Facebook, more people to follow you on Instagram. That's not what life is about. Life is about living to honor Jesus. 
Life is about sharing the gospel. Life is about growing the kingdom. We live our life as a sacrifice to Jesus to make his name more famous. And if we've been doing that all the way through life, then if we have to die for Jesus at the end, it's just a natural continuation of what we've been doing since day one. And that's how Paul could finish well. The third thing we learned from verse 6 was this. Finishing well for Paul means having the right view of death. In this world, everyone seems to fear death. Oh, don't kill me! That's what everyone's afraid of, but Paul was not that way at all. In fact, we saw this in the book of Philippians, that Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far. That if you are a Christian, your fear of death is gone. Death is not the worst moment in your life. It is the absolute best moment in your life. The day that you will finally see Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who died for you, face to face. And so Paul, he didn't live his life afraid of death. He lived his life looking forward to death. Not because he likes death itself, but because death wasn't a defeat. For Christians, death is always a victory. That's how he could finish well. So those are the three points of how to finish well we learned last week. Now we're going to look at verses 7 and 8 where we're going to learn more. And Paul learns more, more lessons from Paul's past and more lessons from Paul's future. So the first one we'll look at, which is actually point four, is this. Finishing well means I must realize the Christian life is a spiritual struggle. Where do we get that from? Paul has these three short phrases. We're going to unpack them. The first one is simply this. I have fought the good fight. And I want to camp on these two words, fought and fight. They're the Greek words agon or, and agonizomai, forms of the same word. And I put this in your outline. We get the English word agony out of this. It means an excessive amount of energy and effort expended in a contest. Usually it was associated with athletics, like a boxing match that kept going on and on and on. Remember the, remember the Rocky movies? The agonies of my, the agony of going another round with Drago. That's what this is talking about. It could also be used to describe a wrestling match. And if you guys have ever been wrestlers, you know what I'm talking about. It's hard. You have to keep going and going, and there's just no way you can let up. It is hard. It is difficult work. Sometimes this word was used for runners who ran a marathon. Excessive amount of long, gut-wrenching activity. And what Paul says is the Christian, he says the athletic events in this world are not the only place where you experience agonizomai. Long, sustained, gut-wrenching effort. The Christian life is this way. The only way to finish your Christian life well is to realize that our Christian walk is like a long, sustained, difficult, and hard obedience in the same direction. Fakes it. Christian life is hard. Turning away from sin, turning to Jesus, it's not easy. By the way, if you are a businessman, you know this. The only way to be successful in the field in which you work is you need a lot of self-discipline. You need a lot of hard work. You need a lot of long, extended hours I saw the other day a, a YouTube video about Elon Musk and talking about their seasons in Tesla. He would be working 20 hours a day because the corporation was at such crucial points. He had to get work done. But that's the only way to be successful in business, isn't it? You have to be a hard worker. But it's not just true for business. It's true for the Christian life as well. The only way to be able to finish well is to realize the Christian life is hard, 
and it's going to require a lot of work, long, sustained effort. If you think being a Christian is about a walk in the park, you are sadly mistaken. You will not finish well. Here's why. Realize that Satan is committed to your destruction. The demons are committed to your destruction. We have our own fleshly weaknesses. We have our own, our own lusts that we're fighting against. And is anybody else fighting against their own laziness? Yeah, like all of us. Oh, I'm supposed to get up and read my Bible. Snooze button. Right. It takes work. It takes discipline. Remember when we had Pastor Chris that was on staff here and he was involved in the Ironman triathlons and he would tell me the stories about all these long swims and these long runs and these long cyclings. I said, man, that reminds me of the Christian life. We're in a triathlon. We're in the Ironman race. That's what it means for us. So folks, if you want to finish well, you have to get it out of your mind that the Christian life is a cakewalk or that it's an easy walk. It is not. It is a fight. It is a war where Satan and your own flesh is fighting against you. It's going to take work. I like the way Paul says it. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Toil here means to work oneself to the point of utter exhaustion, to work oneself to the bone. That's the way Paul describes his Christian walk and his Christian life. Now the next point I'd like to make, which is actually the fifth point overall, is this. Finishing well means remembering the struggle of the Christian life is actually a good and noble battle. And I get that point out of simply one word and that simple phrase where Paul says, I have fought the good fight. The word good is actually the Greek word kalos. And good as a semantic domain doesn't really capture all of the meaning of what that Greek word says. It means good as in noble, as in an honorable thing to do. The Christian fight is not a dumb fight. It's not a waste of your time fight. It is a good, noble, and honorable fight. Fighting against sin, fighting to follow Jesus, it is an agonizing battle. It is a difficult battle. When you fail and you repent and you go back, it, it goes on all life long, doesn't it? Just Paul. Right, all of us are doing that. But it's a good battle. It is. I mean, think of it this way. What are you giving your life to? And people have hobbies. And hobbies aren't all bad. For some people, they like their old car. That's their hobby. For other people, they love their pet. There's a, there you go, a pet hobby lady. For other people, it's their boat. No amens on the boat. Okay. For some people, it's their work. Their work is their hobby. It's what they pour their lives into. And by the way, those are not necessarily bad things to pour your life into. Some of those are good things to pour your life into. But I will tell you, there is no better and more worthy thing to pour your life into than the agonizing battle of walking with Jesus Christ for all of life. Nothing better. Not easy but nothing better than walking with Christ, repenting of sin, and constantly following him in the ups and downs of life as it is. In fact, I like the way Paul says it. Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Remember Paul's background, impeccable credentials, trained under Gamaliel, highly respected, extremely brilliant. This guy had more academic degrees than Fahrenheit. But he turned his back on all of those things to follow Jesus Christ because it was a battle 
He was beaten. He was stoned. All those kind of things. But it was a good and noble battle. Completely worth it. He considered everything else rubbish compared to the following Jesus. So, if we're going to finish well, we need to realize that Christian life is a fight. It's a battle. We also need to realize but it's a good and a noble fight. Nothing more worthwhile to give your life to in this life than that. The next thing is this. To finish well we means, to, means we need to stay on the course. And I get that out of this very little phrase. After he says, I fought the good fight, he says, I have finished the race. What Paul is saying is the Christian life, when he looks back on it, it's like running a race. And if you're going to run a race, the most important thing you have to do is finish the race. And the best way you can finish the race is actually stay on the track. Because if you get off the track, you're never going to get to the finish line. Then you may wonder, how is the Christian life like a race? Think of it this way. The moment you began, became a Christian, at that moment, the starting gun went off. And you began running your race. It's a race to follow Christ, and to do good works for Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verses uh, 10, says that God has prepared in advance good works for us to do. People that we can tell Jesus. People we can serve in the name of Jesus. We continue doing that until Jesus decides to call our name and take us home to heaven. That's the race we run. But what you find as you look at the book of Hebrews, there are things that either slow us down in that race or take us off the track during the race of the Christian life. Look what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The book of Hebrews says there are two things that affect the way we run the race of the Christian life. There is weight which can slow us down, and there's sin which takes us off the track. Let me look at these. Number one here, is, or A in your outline, unnecessary weight will slow us down as we run for Jesus. Some of you know my daughter, Deanna, and she ran in track this year, and she was part of that track team that did a really great job and went to the state finals. Beginning of the season, she came to me with this Amazon link and said, Dad, I need you to buy me these shoes. Anybody who have daughters that come to their dad and say, Dad, I need you to buy me this? Yeah, well, she's pretty good at that, sending me Amazon links. I'm like, why do you need these shoes? She says, well, I need these shoes for track. And I thought to myself, well, why do we have to do this? Why can't we get the cheaper shoes? And she said, well, they're heavier. And I said, well, if you're talking about weight, your brother left his steel-toed work boots in the garage. Why don't you try running in those? And she looked at me and sort of cocked her head and says, but Dad, if I run in those, I'm not going to be able to run that fast. And what she wanted was the shoes that were lightest of all so she could run fastest of all. And by the way, yes, she twisted my arm and I bought them for her. But she didn't want excess weight. And that's what it's like in our Christian life. As we're running the life, running the race of faith, there are things that can enter into our lives that we can allow in that weigh us down, that slow us down as we're running for Jesus. So we're not able to accomplish all of the good works that God has planned for us to do because we're often weighted down or distracted away from him. Now understand, weight, what Paul, or the writer of Hebrews is talking about here, are not sinful things. They're just extra things. They're like baggage. Picture a guy trying to run in the airport to catch a plane, but he has five suitcases. He's not going too fast. Not bad things, just carrying a lot of weight. What might this look like? The thought that came to mind was an incident years ago when I was a youth pastor. 
Uh, we had a great youth group at the time, and the kids were really growing in Christ, on fire for Jesus, looking like they're going to launch out of the church, into college, into life, doing really well. And one of the mothers came into me and said, by the way, my daughter and I, just so you know, I don't want you to be surprised, but we won't be at church and she won't be at youth group for the next six months. We're just not going to be there. I said, well, why? And she said, well, she made traveling soccer. And so we're not going to be around because traveling soccer will take Sunday like all day long for us. Well, in that six months turned into a year. Didn't see him for a year. And eventually she graduated, and uh, the hopes were that she would, do college, or she would do soccer in college. How well do you think that worked out? Nope, she wanted nothing to do with soccer. She was now sick of soccer. But when she went into college, I remember she was struggling with her faith. Not that she lost her faith, but she was definitely struggling. And one of the reasons was because she stayed away from good, solid Christian teaching. She stayed away from solid Christian fellowship. She wasn't under the teaching of the Word of God. That whole thing was just taken out of her life for a year. And she, she was not able to run as fast and run as well for Jesus. Now, I don't want to give any necessarily any more illustrations, but I do know that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and in your life right now. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit is raising in your thoughts those things that He is saying to you, are these weights in your life? Are these things that are slowing you down in your pursuit of me in keeping you from achieving all that I would want you to do with, my, do with your life? What are those weights that are in your life today? Well, weights slow us down. Sin is the other one the writer of Hebrews talks about. And that literally takes us off the course as we run for Jesus. In other words, we cannot be doing the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do and pursuing sin at the same time. When, you're, when we're pursuing a sinful lifestyle, we're participating in sinful choices that we know are wrong, that's keeping us from being on the track, doing the good work that God wants us to do. I think of it this way. If we're on the track, running the race, and then all of a sudden we leave the track and start chasing like rabbits in the bushes, we're not making progress. And that's what sin does. Now, does God forgive our sin? Yes. When we ask him to forgive our sin, he is more than willing to forgive our sins because Jesus died for those things. But the simple fact remains the time we used while we were pursuing sin was time we cannot now redeem for doing good works. We've lost those opportunities. So, while weights in life slow us down on the race of Jesus and doing good works, sin takes us off the track. So we cannot be pursuing the good works that God wants us to do in Jesus. Next point. Finishing well means, by the way, keeping the faith. The third little phrase, he says, I have kept the faith. Kept means guarded, means maintained. Paul realized that he had been given a sacred trust by God. That sacred trust was the gospel message. And he was to preach the gospel. He was to live the gospel. He was to proclaim the gospel. What he was not to do was compromise it or change the gospel. Folks, while the gospel message was given to Paul, the Holy Spirit in his infinite wisdom inspired Paul to write the books of Scripture, many of them that are in our New Testament, which are the gospel message. And that gospel message has now been entrusted to your hands, it's been entrusted to my hands. The only way we can keep this faith, the only way we can live this faith, is if we actually know this faith, which means reading this book, which means knowing this book, and following this book. Which is why, by the way, one of the reasons that we teach directly from this book, to help you keep the faith. Be ever so wary 
ever so careful of those people who would like to ignore this book and call themselves the church. Be ever so wary of those people who would like to focus on critical race theory instead of this book, or who want to change this book, or ignore very clear verses in this book, because those people will not be keeping the faith. One of my favorite verses, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, where Jesus says, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just as important as the three meals, maybe four, you will eat today, is taking the time to feed your soul. The only way to feed your soul is from this book. If you are contenting yourself that the only time you have in God's word is when you hear me speak God's word, or preach God's word, let me tell you, you will be starving of God's word by the end of this week. I only get to preach once a week. What you need to do is get this book out and read it yourself so you can know the truth and keep the truth. You need to put your finger in the text. Folks, one of the things we began in January was this Take Up and Read Challenge. And if you want to learn more about it, simply go to your bulletin, which has some information about it, that we are reading right now through the book of Romans as a church family, and we'll soon be reading through the book of Ephesians as a church family. And the challenge is very simple. It's just one chapter a day, five days a week, to keep our finger in the text so the Holy Spirit would take the Word of God and apply it into our heart and lives. Have you ever had that when you're reading the Bible and all of a sudden it seems like the words jump off the page and you begin to wonder if God wrote those words specifically for you because it's exactly what you needed to hear in that day, in that moment? Anybody? Yes. That's why man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. By the way, this this deposit, this word that has been entrusted, Timothy was to guard it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, the third point, or the, the eighth point, I guess I have to get used to having those extra three in the front. The eighth point is this. Finishing well means fixing my eyes on my heavenly reward. We're going to take a little more time to unpack this point because this is a very crucial point, and it will contain some things I haven't explained in my 13 years here. So this will be very helpful for you. I want to begin by telling you about what happened when I was in elementary school. I remember that somebody came in, and they challenged us to sell magazine subscriptions as kids because this was a school fundraiser. Did anybody have that where you had to sell magazine subscriptions? Yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't interested in anything they had to say in funding my school as a a fourth grader or a fifth grader, whatever it was. But when they showed me the rewards for the most magazine subscriptions, I was quickly interested. The number one prize was a Pac-Man game about this big. Now, taking Pac-Man and moving him around the screen to eat those little dots, get that fruit while running away from the ghosts, oh, in my mind, as a fifth grader, that was heaven on earth. And you can imagine what I did when I left school that day. I walked home from school, stopping at every single house on the way, selling magazine subscriptions. And yes, by the way, I won the Pac-Man. My, now, where is that Pac-Man? In a landfill someplace in New Jersey right now. But the simple point is this, that when we know the rewards that are offered to us, it motivates us. And what we need to remember is that we have such an incredibly good God. He doesn't just save us through Jesus Christ. But he goes over and above and beyond that. And he looks forward to rewarding us, to motivate us to live for him.
Now let me talk a little bit more about th what these kind of rewards are. By the way, rewards uh, and to motivate us, it's all throughout the scriptures, not just in the text we're going to look at. Let me look at some of these other passages in scripture. Luke chapter 6, 22 through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. No matter what kind of loneliness you face for Jesus, social ostracization you face for Jesus, mocking, even beating, and physical torture you face because you're following Jesus, rejoice and be happy. Because you know what? God will reward you for being faithful to him in those times. And by the way, the reward that you will receive will be far greater than any suffering you had to endure. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called a reward, would it? We also see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. There is no way you can get your mind around the rewards and the joy and the glory that is ours through Jesus Christ in all of eternity. That's how good God is to us. The psalmist talks about it this way. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. God knows everything that is happening in your life. He is a judge, but he will reward you. Reward us for making the right choices. One of my favorite, as I was thinking about it this week, is actually Moses. Remember Moses, the son of Pharaoh? And we often forget that part. He's the son of Jeff Bezos of the day. Pharaoh has all the cash, he has all the flash, he has all the wealth, he has all the power, anything Moses' heart desires, anything is his. And what did Moses do? He turned his back on all of it. And he didn't turn his back on all the pleasures of Egypt because he wanted less joy. He turned his back on all the pleasures of Egypt because he wanted more joy. Do you get that? Look what it says. For he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Better to be mistreated with God's people now and enjoy heavenly reward later than to enjoy all the earthly reward this earth has to offer right here and right now. One more, Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. No matter what you face in this life, it could be loneliness, it could be heartache, it could be the death of children, it could be torture. It'll all be but a little distant memory compared to the glory that'll be ours in Jesus Christ because that'll be so incredibly great. This reward, what comes in the future, is what Paul is talking about in the eighth verse where he says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's work through this text. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown. Henceforth simply means what's up next. Laid up for me is a, uh, sort of means kept in safety. It's what you put in uh, the safety deposit box or it's put in the bank. Nothing is going to happen to this. No one's going to lose it. It's safely deposited for me. And what does he say? 
the crown. Now here's where we get to things that maybe some of you uh, will be new for many of you. The Greek word for crown here is the Greek word Stephanos. It's not the Greek word diadem. Diadem is a king's crown. It's a gold crown. This is not that kind of crown. A Stephanos crown is typically an olive wreath crown. You've seen those that are woven together and put on a head, and it is usually put on someone's head to honor that person. Say, for instance, you have somebody who has served in civil government for a number of years. They have done a wonderful job. They have a retirement party for that person. In this culture, at that time, you would give them a Stephanos crown in the retirement party, an olive wreath crown that would go around their head that would say, this is a person that we are desiring to honor and just to lift up in this particular event. But most commonly, the Stephanos crown was used in athletic events. It was a winner's crown, a champion's crown. They would put that on the head. And maybe if you've seen the Olympics that were, when they were done, I think it was in, in Greece, they didn't just give gold, silver, and bronze medals. But if you look on the internet, you'll see that those athletes were given an olive wreath crown on their heads. That's where this comes from. But here's the problem with a Stephanos crown, a crown of honor for something that somebody has done. What happens to olive wreaths, guys? How long do they last? Yeah, in this heat, they dry quickly. They, they fade. And by the way, it's the same thing with Olympic gold medals. People are not interested in, like, last Olympics gold medalist. They're interested in who's this Olympics gold medalist, because the glory always fades with time. But look what Paul says about the crown that'll be his, and ultimately will be ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. For every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Folks, the crown that Paul is looking forward to receiving, it's a crown of honor that is going to be given to him, but it will not fade in glory like an olive wreath. It'll continue to maintain its glory for all of time. Now the next question that comes on is what is this crown? It's called the crown of righteousness. Now, there's a lot of debate on here what that means, and I'm not going to get into the debate because of the interest of time. I'm just going to tell you what I think it is, my best understanding of it. It's the crown that is righteousness. The idea is that this is the reward God will give Paul. You see, there's two things that Christians desire. Christians desire, number one, to be with God, and number two, Christians desire to be away from sin. The crown of righteousness is the total absence of sin. We deserve the lake of fire, but we are given complete and total righteousness. No more sin in eternity, no more agony, no more depression, no more evil. That is all gone. Just this past week, someone came up to me and they talked to me and they asked me to pray because they were diagnosed with breast cancer. What do they want? They want God to give them healing. But what they really want is they want righteousness because the cancer is a manifestation of sin. They want to be in a body that is without sin. What do they want? They, when you go to the court, the court says, is they, the court gives them justice and truth. You want to be without sin. I'm going to be a little wild, guys, so you might as well get down here. I'm going to finish this up. What does it say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Folks, there are different kinds of righteousness that are out there. When you and I become a Christian, in that moment we are given imputed righteousness. What that means is all of our sin 
is put to Jesus and the perfection of Jesus' life is credited to us. So in that moment, legally, we are declared completely righteous. But as you and I know, we may be legally declared righteous, but we still struggle with righteousness, don't we? What happens during the Christian life is the Holy Spirit begins working in our lives and he starts to work out what is called practical righteousness. So we move from imputed righteousness to like you were talking about, Whitney, with that one lady this morning, the practical righteousness starting to come out in our life. But she's still going to struggle. We still are going to struggle with righteousness. But what ultimately happens in eternity, the crown of righteousness we are given is perfect righteousness once and for all. No longer will we struggle with sin. No longer will we struggle to love God most in our life. We will be given the crown of perfect righteousness. No more sin, no more struggling to love our neighbor, no more struggling to love God with all of our heart and soul and our mind. That is going to be a reward that is given to us. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Is this the only reward given to us as Christians? The crown of righteousness, perfect righteousness once and for all. No, it is not. There will be additional rewards for believers based on how they lived. This is not what Paul is talking about in this passage, these additional rewards. But I need to explain them to you right now if you're going to understand how this works. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. As Christians, we'll all appear before the judgment seat. By the way, this is a different kind of judgment seat than you would first think of. This is not a court judge where somebody wears a black robe to declare what you're going to do when you go to jail and how long you're going to be in prison. That's not the way a judgment seat is talked about here. This judgment seat is the kind of judgment seat that Olympic judges sit at after you see a gymnastics performance and they hold up a number and the Russian always holds up the low number. Remember that? Where your performance is evaluated. This is what Jesus is going to evaluate on Christians, how we have lived our life for him. And it's very tricky here because it's a little misrepresented, I think. Whether good or evil, it says. The word evil here is the Greek word phallos, and I do not believe that evil is a good and appropriate translation. Phallos can mean evil, but it also can be translated as valueless, or worthless. So what we are going to be judged by as Christians, beyond the crown of righteousness that we just talked about, is how we have lived our life as Christians. Do we do good things for Christ with it? Or did we do valueless and worthless things with it? We will be rewarded, depending on what we did, good things for Jesus or valueless. By the way, we find this same thing talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each has done. Think of this. Is wood, hay, or straw an evil thing? It's a valueless thing. Gold, silver, and precious stones are valuable things. What will happen is there'll come a day where we will be judged by Jesus as Christians for what we have done with our faith. Do we do valueless things or worthwhile things to make Jesus' name famous? And we will be rewarded accordingly. Now, the next question that you ask is, what are those rewards? And I'll tell you what I believe they are. The rewards we will receive are simply increased capacity to serve Jesus in eternity. If we have served Jesus Christ well now, we will be rewarded with increased capacity to serve Jesus Christ in eternity later. 
You want to find some scriptural support on that? I don't have time to go into this. Go into the parable of the minus. That's exactly where you find it. Now, let me finish this part up here. Back to the text. He says, which the Lord, the righteous judge. Jesus will be the completely fair and just judge to award us. When will he reward us? He will award me, he says, on that day. What is that day? The day when Jesus returns is the day that we will be rewarded by Jesus for how we have lived. Now, like the scripture supports this in other places. For instance, therefore, do not pronounce judgment, Paul says, before the time, before the Lord comes, right there, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. Or Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon and bringing my recompense with me. Or as some translations say, my reward is with me to repay to each one for what he has done. So Christians who have died, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far. But it will get better, folks, because when Jesus returns, here is what happens. Christians who have died will have their bodies resurrected. They will get their bodies back and their bodies will be transformed to be just like Christ's resurrection body to live forever. And those who are Christians who are alive when Jesus returns will also have their bodies transformed to be like Christ's resurrection body that'll live forever. Not only that, but they will get the crown of righteousness that will never fade, for all Christians will get this, the gift of perfect righteousness that will set us apart from everything else. And then those who have served, if they've served Christ, will be evaluated and rewarded by Christ with increased capacity to serve him. Folks, who is all this for? It's all for you. It's all for me. May we be men and women who finish well. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.